Chapter 10, Myths of Militancy. One of the major distortions of postmillennial and reconstructionist teaching is that this position leads to revolutionary militancy. It is true that the rhetoric of some Christian reconstructionist writers is confrontational and militant, in some cases overly so, but it is misleading to equate militant language with advocating revolution. Jesus used militant language in condemning the Pharisees, but he was certainly no advocate of revolution. Our position is that Christians should follow the examples of biblical characters such as Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus Christ himself. Joseph and Daniel both exercised enormous influence within the world's greatest empires, but they attained their positions by hard work, perseverance in persecution and suffering, and faithful obedience. Jesus Christ attained to his throne only by enduring the suffering of the cross. Christians are no different. We are not to attain positions of leadership by revolution or rebellion. Instead, we are to work at our callings and wait on the Lord to place us in positions of influence in his time. Bringing Persecution on Ourselves Dave Hunt and Peter Lalonde perpetuate the myth that postmillennialism is militant. In the Omega Letters taped interview with Dave Hunt, Peter Lalonde responds to an advertisement for a book series called The Biblical Blueprint Series, published by Dominion Press. The advertisement coffee reads in part, For the first time in over 300 years, a growing number of Christians are starting to view themselves as an army on the move. This army will grow. This series is designed to help it grow and grow tougher. Lalonde responds by saying, They're very militant about this. They're really giving cause to the people for the American way. Hunt replies, Right, right, they literally are because they're saying, Well, these Christians want to take over the world. Well, indeed they do. Several comments on these views are in order. First, Lalonde describes this view as very militant. The word militant conjures up images of armed conflict or Islamic fundamentalism. Yet, though not pacifistic in matters of national defense, Reconstructionists regularly condemn revolutionary armed conflicts or direct civil disobedience as the way to extend the kingdom. R.J. Rushdoony, for example, wrote a 1975 article on Jesus and the Tax Revolt, in which he contended that our Lord ruled out the tax revolt, revolution as the way, rather than regeneration. The Christian response to unjust taxation is not revolt, but rendering to God the things that are God's. We render ourselves, our homes, our schools, churches, states, vocations, all things to God. We make biblical law our standard, and we recognize in all things the primacy of regeneration. Similarly, Gary North calls advocates of kingdom by revolution romantic revolutionaries. This is not a recent emphasis in North's writings. His first major book was Marxist Religion of Revolution, in which he insisted that faithful men will remain orderly in all the aspects of their lives. They are not to create chaos in order to escape from law. Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 14:40. It is reserved for God alone to bring his total judgment to the world. In the biblical worldview, it is God and only God who initiates the change. North has pointed out repeatedly that the kingdom of God advances ethically as the people of God work out their salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, one of Dr. North's books, Moses and Pharaoh, is subtitled Dominion Religion vs. Power Religion. 
power religion is a religious viewpoint which affirms that the most important goal for a man, group, or species is the capture and maintenance of power. Power is seen as the chief attribute of God, and if the religion is officially atheistic, then the chief attribute of man. This perspective is a satanic perversion of God's command to man to exercise dominion over all creation. Genesis 1, 26-28 It is the attempt to exercise dominion apart from covenantal subordination to the true creator God. What distinguishes biblical dominion religion from satanic power religion is ethics. Biblical Militancy on the other hand, the Bible itself uses military metaphors to show that the Christian is engaged in relentless battle with the enemy. Of course, the Bible calls us to fight our ethical battles with spiritual weapons, but the people for the American way folks don't understand that. The church has sung the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, for decades. Consider the militant words and how unbelievers would respond to the militaristic tone. Onward Christian Soldiers, Marching as to War, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads us against the foe. Forward into battle, he sees his banners go. The Apostle Paul tells Christians to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6.11. Of course, Paul is talking about a spiritual battle, but those outside the church community may not perceive it in those terms, just as Norman Lear and People for the American Way, PA, misconstrue our intentions. What if a pastor quoted Paul's words in Ephesians 6.11 to his congregation and a representative from PA was there? Imagine the headlines, Minister advocates taking up arms. Every man is to be armed with weapons to defeat the enemy. The word would go out warning Americans that Christians are advocating armed conflict. At first, even Pilate considered Jesus' kingdom to be militaristic and political, John 18, 28-40. In Acts, the Christians were described as a sect preaching another king, Jesus, Acts 17, 7. Their persecutors were the forerunners of people for the American way. They said of the first century Christians, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus verses 6 and 7. There was another king, but those outside of Christ put a political and revolutionary slant on Christ's kingship. So then, it is perfectly natural for anti-Christian groups like Norman Lear's People for the American Way to misrepresent Christians who believe that there is a dominion feature to the gospel. The first century Christians were accused in a similar way. The anti-dominionists don't want to stir up the enemies of Christ with a victory-oriented gospel. Lalonde suggests that people who believe that the Bible applies to every area of life, including politics, are bringing persecution on themselves. The first century humanists understood the implications of the gospel better than Hunt and Lalonde. They saw that if the gospel message is true, their total allegiance would have to change from Caesar to Christ. Caesar's worldview then dominated every facet of society. This new Lord Jesus would make a similar demand. In time, the Christian worldview came to dominate society. Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote, One of the most amazing and significant facts of history is that within five centuries of its birth, Christianity won the professed allegiance of the overwhelming majority of the population of the Roman Empire and even the support of the Roman state. Who's revolutionary? Other premillennial writers have also attempted to paint postmillennialism in blood-red colors. Norman Geisler writes, Many evangelicals are calling for civil disobedience, even revolution, against the government. 
Francis Schaeffer, for example, insisted that Christians should disobey government when any office commands that which is contrary to the word of God. He even urges a blood revolution, if necessary, against any government that makes such laws. He explains that in a fallen world, force in some form will always be necessary. What makes this comment particularly interesting is the fact that Schaefer was a pre-millennialist, not a post-millennialist. Geisler admits that this is true, but adds that it appears that in actual practice, at this point, his views were post-millennial. This is certainly a strange, and we must add, a very deceptive argument. Geisler cites Francis Schaeffer, a pre-millennialist, to try to show that the post-millennial position encourages revolution, and Schaeffer is the only writer that Geisler cites. Geisler does not cite a single post-millennial writer who advocates revolution, so it is a sheer bias on his part to conclude that Schaeffer is operating as a post-millennialist. In fact, he has not even proven that Schaefer was a revolutionary. Schaefer, with Calvin and many other Calvinists, simply claimed that resistance against tyranny is legitimate in some cases. Not only has Geisler failed to prove his point, but he offers absolutely no evidence that would contribute to such a proof. In fact, the evidence Geisler does cite proves precisely the opposite of what he concludes. The fact that Francis Schaeffer advocated revolution would be evidence that premillennialism encourages violent civil disobedience. We are not saying that premillennialism is revolutionary. We are simply pointing out that Geisler's evidence does not prove what he says it proves. In fact, revolutionary forms of Christianity can be associated with either pre- or postmillennial eschatologies. The issue is not one's millennial view, but one's time frame. Some postmillennialists in the history of the church have believed that Christ was going to return soon. Think about it. If you believe that the world will be Christianized as postmillennialists do, and also believe that you have only a few years or months to do it, then there is no alternative but to impose Christianity by force on the nations. The quickest means to leadership is political and military takeover. These short-term postmillennialists are revolutionaries because they cannot see any other way for Christians to take dominion. By contrast, modern postmillennial Reconstructionists are not revolutionary because they have a more consistently biblical view of the future. Reconstructionists generally believe they have time, lots of time, to accomplish their ends. Moreover, they are not revolutionary because they believe that Christians achieve leadership by living righteously. Dominion is by ethical service and work, not by revolution. Thus, there is no theological reason for a postmillennialist to take up arms at the drop of a hat. Biblical postmillennialists can afford to wait for God to judge ungodly regimes, to bide their time, and to prepare to rebuild upon the ruins. Biblical postmillennialists are not pacifists, but neither are they revolutionaries. Many premillennial theologians, however, believe that Christ is coming in the very near future. Those premillennialists who believe that Christ wants them to be culturally influential, as Francis Schaeffer did, thus imply that Christians have to gain leadership now. This is also the problem with many charismatic Kingdom Now writers. They believe that Christians are meant to lead, but they don't believe that Christians have the time to gain positions of leadership through service and faithfulness. Their position is potentially dangerous, not because it is optimistic, but because it lacks a long-term time frame. Revolution and the Timing of the Kingdom Historically, the Christians who have advocated violent revolution have believed that the end of the world was at hand. For example, Christopher Hill writes that the fifth 
monarchist, a sect that appeared during the Puritan Revolution, believed that the reign of Christ upon the earth was shortly to begin. They believed that this reign was imminent and inspired by prophecy led uprisings against the government in 1657 and 1661. The fifth monarchists were not the only ones in the 17th century England who were expecting some kind of cataclysmic change. In another book, Hill writes, To many men, the execution of Charles I in 1649 seemed to make sense only as clearing the way for King Jesus as the prelude to greater international events. A Bristol Baptist in 1654, hearing that two Frenchmen had been imprisoned, for foretelling the end of the world in 1656, was worried because he was not prepared for that event. Between 1648 and 1657, Ralph Jocelyn was reading millennial tracts, one of which suggested that Oliver Cromwell would conquer the Turk and the Pope. He was continually thinking and dreaming about the millennium. He noted in his diary that men expected the world to end in 1655 or 1656, though he did not share the belief. This generation shall not pass, declared John Tillingsgast in 1654, until the millennium has arrived. John Bunyan announced in 1658 that the judgment day is at hand. These ideas were in the air from the beginning of the Puritan Revolution and doubtless contributed to the revolutionary fever. It is not clear whether these men were pre- or post-millennial, but their tendency toward revolution was obviously fed by a sense that some dramatic eschatological event was just around the corner. This frantic sense of imminence, combined with the Puritan emphasis on reform, was, we believe, a major flaw in the Puritan outlook at that time, and the Puritans might have avoided some mistakes if they had not had such a truncated historical perspective. This short-term view of the future was a motivating force for the People's Crusades of the 11th and 12th centuries, the people who participated in the Crusades to the Holy Land saw themselves as actors in the prodigious consummation toward which all things had been working since the beginning of time. On all sides they believed the signs which were to mark the beginning of the last days, and heard how the last trumpet proclaimed the coming of the righteous judge. They believed that the biblical prophecies of the end of the world were just beginning to be fulfilled, and that Antichrist is already born. At any moment, Antichrist may set up his throne in the temple at Jerusalem. Even amongst the higher clergy, there were some who spoke like this. And little as the fantasies had to do with the calculations of Pope Urban, they were attributed to him by chroniclers struggling to describe the atmosphere in which the First Crusade was launched. It is the will of God, Urban, is made to announce at Clement that through the labors of the Crusaders, Christianity shall flourish again at Jerusalem in these last times, so that when Antichrist begins his reign here, as shortly he must, he will find enough Christians to fight. Similar sentiments were expressed by the Anabaptist who seized Munster in 1534 through 1535. The rest of the earth, it was announced, was doomed to be destroyed before Easter, but Munster would be saved and would become the new Jerusalem. One of the leaders of the German peasant revolt, Thomas Munster, saw himself as the Lord's instrument of judgment to prepare for the return of Christ. He exhorted his followers to put on their swords to exterminate the ungodly, for the ungodly have no right to live save what the elect choose to allow them. This brief glance at Christian revolutionary movements suggests that the unifying thread through the eschatologies of 
all such movements is not postmillennialism, but an obsession with the imminent return of Christ, faced with the prospect of almost immediate final judgment, a few Christians have turned to violence. Kingdom Weapons Mr. Hunt himself admits that Christians are engaged in some kind of warfare. The issue is, what are weapons of the kingdom warfare? Hunt says that the Christians' weapons are obedience, prayer, holy living, self-sacrifice, love, preaching, and applying God's word. Our weapon is not political, social action. We agree that our weapons are prayer, the word, righteousness, the sacraments, etc. Our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but with the hidden forces of satanic darkness, Ephesians 6. We do not wage war as the world does, 2 Corinthians 10, 1-6. We are to disciple the nations by teaching the commands of Christ and baptizing them into the triune name, Matthew 28, 18-20. But our spiritual fighting has an effect on the world. It has an effect on the progress of history. Paul implies this in the very passage where he says we do not fight as the world does. We are in the world, but we do not fight as the world does. Moreover, we fight so that we can take every thought captive to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 Whose thoughts are to be taken captive? Obviously, the thoughts of real men and women are taken captive. If the thoughts of men and women are to be taken captive to Christ, is it plausible to suggest that there will be no visible effects on society and politics? Ideas have consequences. Moreover, we might ask what Hunt means by obedience. Might it involve picketing an abortion clinic or lobbying a congressman? Might it involve ministering to the homeless, the unwed mother, the alcoholic, all of which is, after all, social action? Isn't the heart of obedience to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? Micah 6 8. Might not seeking justice possibly involve political action of some sort? What does Hunt disagree with here? Does he think Christians who fight abortion politically are being disobedient? Hunt would not say this, we're quite certain. All that Reconstructionists are saying is that civil governments must be obedient to Christ, and that obedience will bring God's blessing and restoration. Conclusion Biblical postmillennialism provides the Christian with a long-term hope. Because of this long time frame, the postmillennialists can exercise that chief element of true biblical faith, patience. Because he is confident that the Lord has given him time to accomplish the Lord's purposes, the postmillennialists need not take things into his own sinful hands. The Lord will exalt us when he is ready, and when he knows that we are ready, our calling is to wait patiently, praying, and preparing ourselves for that responsibility, and working all the while to advance his kingdom. Historically, some Christians who lack this long-term hope have taken things into their own hands, inevitably with disastrous consequences. Far from advocating militancy, biblical postmillennialism protects against a short-term revolutionary mentality.